Welcome into another edition of the Weber State Athletics Podcast with Athletic Director Jerry Bovee. I'm Paul Grew from Weber State Athletic Communications. And Jerry, welcome to another podcast. We're recommitting now and, and trying to do some more of these and, and another way to tell our story. Here we go again. I think we've got everything set to go and start a new uh, a new podcast season. Yes, so. indeed. Looking forward to it. Today's guest is Paul Pilkington, the associate head coach for the track and field team and the head coach of the men's and women's cross country team and has had a lot of success at Weber State, and we're going to get into that, some of it coming up today. Paul, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to have you. Him. Just a quick bio, uh, and we're going to get into all this, but Paul is a native of Blackfoot, Idaho, ran at Southern, Southern Idaho, and then ran at Weber State right here, so we're going to talk about those experiences. Yes. And then you're now in your 11th season at Weber wow. State. Is that hard to believe? It's gone fast. It really it's has. Hard. Huh? It's like dog years in our business. <laughs> yeah. It seems to, and uh, of course, lately, especially lately, the the uh, he has led the the Wildcat women's cross country team to a lot of success, multiple Big Sky championships and Big Sky individual titles. He's won four Big Sky Coach of the Year honors, and uh, led the team to the Big Sky to the NCAA championships uh, three times in the last five years. Just recently, Ellie Child was the Big Sky champion again on the women's cross country side as well. So, boy, Co- lots Coach of the Year honors never get old for you. I th- I'm Want them every year. I'm kind of upset I didn't win this year. I did another. Yeah. I know. Dang it. So much to get into. Let's start with distance running. Why would somebody want to be a distance runner? <laughs> you know, I got into it um, as a kid. I was training in the potato fields, moving irrigation pipe, and didn't know I was training. We, uh, I grew up in a time frame before they had wheel lines, and so every farm hired these teenage young men to go move irrigation pipe twice a day. And when I got big enough and strong enough, you had an hour and a half to move those that pipe 32 rows, come back and grab the next. And then the pumps were being turned on. So we would run moving that irrigation pipe. So I was training twice a day all summer. In waiter boots, probably. Yeah, or in some, boots. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes, in the mud. Yeah. But it was twice a day running and didn't know I was training. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. How about that story? I t- well, I tell that story all the time that I, I married an Idaho girl, and it's always good to marry a girl that's moved pipe because they, <laughs> they can do hard things. <laughs> that, that is for sure. Well, you turned that into quite a career, and we also need to talk about your professional career as a, as a marathoner especially. But uh, So you grew up in Idaho. Uh, coming out of out of high school, uh, decided to go to College of Southern Idaho. Where, where were you sitting, and you know, as, what, what were your ambitions, I guess, at that point? Well, I only ran cross-country and track and field my senior year. Okay. So when I said I was training, I was just moving those irrigation. So how, how did you get into it? Did, did the coach reach out and say, hey, let's let's take a look at I mean, how did that all come to fruition? Well, my um, I was fortunate. I had a good high school coach that was there, Zane Abbott, and they had won the state championship four years in a row. And, but my senior year was that fourth year, and I had friends that were doing it, that were running, and finally... My senior year, I decided, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to try it. Started out, I wasn't even on the varsity. And then by this, by the end of the season, um, I was second guy on our team when we won the state championship. And, you know, for me, I found out that I had a, a knack for it and a, and a natural gift. You know, I chose my parents well, apparently. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people look at some sports like baseball. You can learn to be a very good hitter or a fielder. Can you learn to be a good runner, or is there a is there a ceiling on you know what you can you can in- increase, but there's but a lot of it's God given talent. A lot of it is. It, it you know it wouldn't matter uh, how much explosive type work I I'd never be a real fast sprinter. However, I can develop because of genetics. I can develop that endurance, the long 
the long distance running, and we can work on the leg speed both. But you're limited. Most of it is is genetic. It, it truly is. And and then the the thing about distance running though is it, it's an endurance event, so it takes years and years and years to develop. So you don't reach your prime until mid twenties into mid thirties, really. And I didn't hit my prime in the marathon until I was 35, 36 years old, which is a long time mm-hmm. to keep training. So success is on the margin. You can in, in, enhance your mindset and how to deal with adversity and all that within a race, but just to be able to be good at it, there's got to be something natural there. Absolutely. And then, and then everyone gets to that level, all the good ones, right? And then on the margin, you learn to enhance the craft enough to just just yeah. eke out a little bit of an advantage. And there's certainly science behind what we do as, as coaches and as athletes to, to improve. I don't think most people realize that, but there is the money ball aspect to running. Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of science and research behind it and when to do certain workouts and why you do it and the tapering and everything from how we lift and we'll, in terms of weight program. And it's not just going out and running every day. And... I remember being in a, a student here at Weber State and having a, an education professor say, why don't you just go run faster every day? <laughs> every day, you just run a little faster. I said, well, that's not the, how the science works. <laughs> well, talk about recruiting. And I, I'm fascinated by this with every sport, but how can you tell a kid who's you know, 15, 16, 17, how can you tell they can develop into a, a good quality distance runner? Well, you can't always because some... Some athletes mature, well, we all mature at different rates and different levels. And just because someone is not very good as a 16, 17-year-old doesn't always mean they won't be good at 22, 23. And so part of that as a coach is to look at it, look at their physical maturity. Are they physically mature? Do do you think they have an upside? And in the case of a female distance runner, I like looking at the parents a lot to see what's their size and shape because when they turn into women... You'll see girls, and that's one of the hard things as a collegiate coach. To You'll see freshman, ninth grade, tenth grade girls running very fast, and then they slow down when they hit their junior or senior right. year and turn into young women. College, yeah. So I'll, as I recruit and look, I'll, we always, the great thing is that clock doesn't lie, so you know how fast someone <laughs> is and what they're doing. But you also have to look at what's their family history a little bit, how much do you think they can continue to develop, and... Um, yeah. What's their work ethic? Interesting. So you, when you came to Weber State, uh, tell us about your experiences here. You, you obviously uh, uh, ran with for Coach Chick Hislop, and Jim Blaisdell was here at the time too, right? Well, Jim Blaisdell was my first college coach. Yeah. I, I came right out of high school and ran at College of Southern Idaho, and mm-hmm. he was the coach there. So um, Jim was my very, very first coach. Um, and then well, I ran fast enough in the I was a junior college All-America and that in the steeplechase, and, and Chick Hislop was just starting his steeple program, really. And I was, as he recruited me, I was his second steeplechaser to qualify for the NCAA championships. And um, ended up com- coming here, um, spent three years here. I was hurt one year, had, and so it took me, and I'm an education major, so I had to do student teaching. It mm-hmm. took me longer to graduate anyway as a result. Um, and, and ran here and had a good career. They made it legal um, to accept prize money and still run in the Olympics right after I graduated from college. So the road running boom with prize money took off. Mm. And um, I was teaching school and still getting up in the morning. I'd do my morning run in the the dark at 5.30 and then teach school and then go out and run again after school. 
and eventually got good enough that I was starting to make money and made more money running really than I was teaching school. So I, I, uh, I gave that up and, and went and just ran full time and went back to graduate school mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and had about a six, eight year period where I just ran, um, which is, you know, it's interesting because I had a shoe contract, but it wasn't enough to live off of. So you had to go make it. And, and you know, you, I sometimes talk to my athletes about pressure and it's a positive thing. We want that pressure. We want to walk into conference championships with a target on our back. So we'll deal about deal with talk about positive pressure. We create positive pressure. But it was, you know, when I was a an athlete and the kids needed new shoes, I had to go race to make the money. <laughs> <laughs> or they, they didn't get school clothes. Right. That's a little yeah, bit that, of pressure. pressure. That is pressure. Well, and we do talk about a lot that a lot in athletics that that people uh, confuse stress with pressure. Stress can be bad. I mean, if you look at something that's pressurized, if, if stress gets into one area and, and needles its way in, then it blows the whole thing up. But pressure is good, pressurizing an airplane. In athletics, we try to enhance the pressure and helping athletes to compete under pressure, and that's a good thing. Right. We, we have to teach them to understand stress because that will blow you up. So that's, that's, a, that's an interesting approach that I don't think most people catch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we get on to your, your professional career, uh, you ended up coaching with this, with Chip Fisler, but describe what it was like to run for him, later, of course, coach with him and, and for him, and, and you'd known him for a long time, but what made him so good? And he, as you mentioned, became known for the steeplechase especially, but what made him so good? Well, part of it was his ability to evolve as a coach. The the workouts and the things that that we did later on, that I did when I first came, almost completely changed from the time that I was helping with him and helping coach with him. He and, you know, those that know um, Chick Hislop know that he's, he's pretty driven my way or the highway on certain things. But he was also very open to learn and to continue to look at how to improve and how to get better. And one of the, I think the biggest things I maybe learned from him was that ability to look at what are other people doing and analyze it. And he had a great still does have a great analytical mind. That's part of why he's a good steeple coach because he has that eye and can break things down and, and simplify it and teach it. So his ability as a coach evolved and he was a heck of a lot better coach later in his career than when I first ran for him. Um, it, was, it was kind of his, a little bit of his guinea pig and let's see if this works and <laughs> yeah. if it does or doesn't, does not. And quite frankly, I probably shouldn't have been a steeplechaser. I should have been a 5K, 10K guy. That's where more of my talent was, going longer. Um, but I had an okay career in the steeple, and it set me up well enough. And the other thing is is I wasn't overdone. I wasn't burned out. I wasn't fried. I still had a real desire to compete and to, and to develop and be good. And so he didn't, he didn't eke all of that out of me or take that fire or drive out of me. Good, yeah. And obviously, you know, the steeplechase has continued with you, of course, here with the tremendous success we've had in the steeplechase. So as a professional, uh, Paul, we're visiting with Paul Pilkington, Pil- Paul Pilkington on our, our Weaver Shape podcast. You won a couple marathons, the Houston Marathon and the Los Angeles Marathon, and then had several successes in, in top ten finishes across the world. The Los Angeles Marathon, of course, is the one you're, you're famous for. Because you were the yes. rabbit, right? Yes. That, and you ended up winning. I'll forever be known for that, but that, that's an okay thing. I yeah. guess. Um, the, the major marathons, they want fast races. And so they would, they would pay um, 
athletes, they'd pay us to come in and lead and set the race up because it's better for TV, it's better um, marketing-wise. If you have a fast course, more people want to come and compete in on your course. So I would, uh, I would run one to two marathons a year where I'd run the entire thing, but then I'd go make additional money as the pace setter is the rabbit. And um, I, I could take them through halfway and make six to $9,000 and turn around and race the next week because it wasn't that hard effort-wise. Okay. And, so, and I just happened to be good at, at locking into a rhythm and hitting the pace. And, and I, had, uh, I had rabbited New York, or New York four or five times, um, New York City Marathon. I had rabbited Los Angeles Marathon the year before. And they, they were paying me to do it again. Oh, it was the United States National Championship. So, so as a rabbit, just because I don't, I don't think most people even know that this exists. In, and I still in the don't sport. understand it. As a rabbit, you you set a higher pace that was tougher on your body, and so about halfway through, you you'd met your contractual ob- obligation, and then you would just keep running, but you'd kind of fade back, or or yeah, or just, most or you just get out. out. Yeah. yeah, most of them would just pull out because if you keep going too far, you don't recover. Then you don't get to go next week. So the rabbit's ride. job is just to set, set the pace up. as a fast, go out, sprint really fast. Right, and, 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 and it's similar to like bike racing or auto racing where if you draft. Yeah, the Tour de France is a little bit like that. They've yeah. got a team of people that have specialties, but but only one is good enough to do all of all it, of mountains it. and everything. So, so if, it, if you're running a marathon at five-minute pace, that's a 12-mile-an-hour headway that the person in front is cutting through. So if, if the people behind them, you'll see them line up single file, they're drafting. So mm-hmm. they're conserving energy. And no one wants to be in a major race, that sacrificial person that, hey, I'll take that 12-mile-an-hour right. headwind. Because you can't sustain that, can't, obviously. Yeah, or it wears you out. So, wears you out. So yeah. you can sit and tuck in, conserve energy, and then go the second half. So you're running the Los Angeles Marathon as a rabbit, and what happens? Yeah. <laughs> well, I had planned on running the, the entire thing. I was just gonna, going to lead through what they were paying me to do and then get out of the lead and try and, and finish the race. And In fact, the, I, we had talked, my agent talked to the meet director and said, hey, Paul's probably going to run the whole thing. And they said, that's great, just make sure he hits the time. So I got paid a fee to run the time, to, to run through half marathon. As a rabbit, yeah. And they doubled it if I hit the time they wanted. And then if I went to 25 kilometers, which is 15 and a half miles, they paid me more. And I had asked them, if the lead runners don't go with me, do you want me to slow down? And they said, no. Because they have a meeting the night before the race, and the lead athletes, the elites, say, here's how fast we want. I'm in this kind of shape. That's what I want the rabbit to hit. So they chose the pace. <laughs> and we had the world record holder in the race, in fact. And they paid him a lot of money. They said, no, don't, don't slow down. They'll go with you. Well, I felt real good, got out, led the whole thing from start to finish, and, and ended up by halfway. I had a minute and a half lead. And so I just kept going and feeling good and and ended up winning by 45, 50 seconds. <laughs> At what point did you think, hey, I think I can sustain this and maybe win this thing? At about half, by halfway, I thought, I feel so good that these guys, they'll, they'll never catch me. And and the nice thing is, is I could, the last four miles, because I had it won, I could enjoy it. And they had, Mercedes was a sponsor, so the lead vehicle is a convertible Mercedes, and I, that was part of my prize package. Is I won a Mercedes, so I'm sitting there going, "I'm winning one of those." <laughs> and then I go, that goal was yeah, right. I can't keep going. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so, what? did did any of the racers afterward? How how was the uh, how was the uh, meet and greet afterward with any of those uh, world record holders or whatever? Well, there was, they were okay. There was an Italian who was second. Who some an, an interpreter or somebody said that the Italian had claimed that he thought the rabbit dropped out. But that's another guy who was interpreting said that's not what he said. Um, when you're in a major marathon. You have a police escort, you have motorcycle policemen, you have that lead vehicle, you have a huge cattle truck type thing filled with photographers. With, you have a TV crew right in front of you. You're surrounded. There's, there's 30, 40 vehicles right in front of you. So you know if you're in leading the race or not. This guy in second had no one around him. And, and so he, I mean, he knew that I'd won it. But the press kind of put, picked up on it and said, hey, the guy in second thought the rabbit had dropped out and he was winning. And so um, it, it actually made me a little bit more money because the next year the Venice Marathon paid me quite a bit of appearance fee to go to Venice and race this Italian, Luca Barzaghi, head-to-head again. Say, okay, we'll give him a chance to yeah. go go at it. So I went and ran Venice and Barzaghi was hurt and didn't race well. But, oh, wow. So you beat him twice. Yes. What a story. That's, well, that's amazing. Well, so what did this do for to launch you to a different level in your career? Well, it, financially it was huge because I, I, mean, it was my, I made $108,000 in one race, which if you know, when you're a family, family of five off you running. Big payday. It was a very big payday. And it, it, uh, it made it so, actually my appearance fees went up, but so did my rabbiting fee because they knew that no matter what, if Paul Pilkington's rabbiting this race, everyone's going with him. <laughs> Nobody's going to ever let him get away again. So I, it, it, you know, I was known as the rabbit who held on and won and um, kind of been a, it's, it's a fun story. doesn't happen very much at all, does it? I mean, it had never happened in a major race yeah. before. It had and happened sense. on the track. Um, it has since. There's, there's been a couple of Africans mm-hmm. that have done it. But. <laughs> wow, it, what an amazing story. story. Yeah. Really is, and then uh, so you had a long professional career, and then decided to get into coaching. I did, and I would even when I was still running, I was still coaching. When I came right out of college, I taught taught high school at Delta that first year, and started coaching in 1981. They didn't have cross country there; they had track and field. And I coached, and so I have coached nonstop since 1981. Mm. Speaking of rabbits, the, the Delta, yeah, Delta rabbits, rabbits. Yeah. very good, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and I had uh, I, I did individuals and had a lot of uh, high schoolers that had a lot of success. Footlocker finalists, which is the high school national championship, just training out there in the desert. Yep. So it it was you know, it's been good. Yeah. One one of the things I always tried to do as I traveled and get to these races it would, would be to ask questions and pick other people's brains from coaches to other athletes on what they were doing and what could I learn and what could I pick up from this. And when you're trying to understand if somebody beats me, what is it? Is it simply talent, or are they doing something smarter and wiser in their training? And and it gave me that it it got me access to world class distance runners that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So you're an elite athlete. You're coaching a little bit. You you always see yourself as a coach, but now you've made the transition to a Division One collegiate coach. What were the things immediately that you thought this is you know this transition is going to be easy for me? I I participated here. I know that I know the lay of the land. There's always a couple of things that come up, and you go, wow, this this is a little different. I mean, there's a lot of balls in the air. It's not just about being on the course. So what right. were the things that you had to then transition again to? Well, some of it is the evolution of what the NSA requires now in terms of a coach to do uh, paperwork and 
and restrictions and guidelines and, and things that the general public doesn't even realize yeah. that we have to do and deal with from everything from making sure our athletes are attending classes and graduating on time. You have APR now. There's a lot of things. I, I, I tell people all the time, our predecessors had it in a different realm, but, but they would even maybe struggle to deal with what we deal with today. I know in my world, I talked to, to former athletic directors, say I didn't have to deal with all that stuff when I was there. It was a different, it was a different set of playing rules. So you, you're seeing that now too. Absolutely, and especially with the, the, the APR. I, I know um, one of the more famous collegiate coaches, he was at Oregon, Bill Bauer, when he started Nike, started building the shoes, you know, in his garage using the waffle iron. He was he was notorious for throwing kicking guys off his team. Yep. Because they didn't like something they did, boom, they were gone that quick. Now can't we we can't do it. We have to find a way to work with those student athletes and keep them in the program, keep them in school, especially with a small squad size. You yeah. have no margin for error on that. Right. And so that means you have to be selective, maybe a little bit more so in who you recruit and, and do your due diligence to find out what type of student are they, what type, what's, and do they really want to do this. Which changes your recruiting process because you can't miss. Back back right. in that time, if you miss, you just let them go and you move on. Moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. A few more minutes with Paul Pilkington, the head coach of the Lubrichet men's and women's cross-country teams. He's in his 11th season here. You've had a lot of success. There's so many athletes we could talk about. Uh, I just wanted to talk about a couple of them. Lindsey Anderson, of course, went on to become an Olympian. Uh, tell us about right. Lindsey and, and how good she was and, and how she turned that into a, becoming an Olympian. Well, she was um, – Jim Blaisdell recruited her. So I didn't start – Jim – coached her her first two years, freshman, sophomore year, and then I started with the women her junior year. And there was a shift and a change in the training we were doing, I think, just different. I wouldn't necessarily say harder, maybe, but it was definitely different. And she she regressed. She ran slower as a junior than she did as a sophomore. But I, However, one of the things that I kind of take pride in is, is being able to develop athletes so by the time they're later on in their career, juniors and seniors, they're ready to go. And it took us a year to transition her to by the time she was then a senior, she was at a whole different level and broke the NCAA record in the steeplechase and then went on right after graduating and made the U.S. team for the world championships. And then two years later, she she made the Olympic team. But we, we sat down, Lindsay and I, after and made some changes to her training even collegiate after her collegiate career because on a world-class level she didn't have the leg speed to kick um, with the she just was just getting blown away so you know one of the things that we did is we we tweaked her massaged a little bit however you want to say it we adjusted her training and worked on her leg speed to get her to where she could kick at a world-class level her first year out of college, she got beat seven seconds in the last 400 at USA Nationals. The next year at the Olympic trials, she got beat by a second and outkicked the girl who was later on won the Olympic silver, silver mm -hmm. medal, was world champion in the 1500. So we were able to develop and change her, her ability to run fast over, but it took a while to get it there. And and she went on two world championships, Olympic team, and, and now just was... Uh, Hired as the, the new track and field coach and cross-country coach at College of Southern Idaho. 
we were adding their program back in after a 19-year break with no track and field. It's, life's a little cyclical. That Coming way. full yeah. circle, that's yes. right. You know, Sarah Collister, Amber Henry, of course, uh, Mike Hardy, your own sons, uh, Seth Bookington ran at Weber State. You've had uh, eight All-Americans in 13, uh, 13 times if you're an All-American. Are there a couple memories, one or two memories that stand out from your time here at Weber State? I'm sure there are multiple, but anything that stands out as you look back? Um, I, you know, obviously, Lindsay making that team was is that very few coaches have the chance to put somebody on the Olympic team. Um, one of the the great things was Mike Hardy, who's a just he was fifth in the NCAA's force two years ago. He's an electrical engineer, works at Hill, but he was not a good hurdler. And this is a funny story. He had he had gotten beat. By, he, he missed the finals at the NCAAs his junior year by two-tenths of a second. So we talked about, you. we've got to get your hurdling better. Well, he was working full-time at Hill, and he built a hurdle and put Christmas lights, a, a battery-operated, around at the top of it because he was doing his morning runs in the dark. He lives right over here on Jackson Avenue in Ogden. He'd come back from his morning run in the dark, turn on the Christmas lights, and hurdle on the, in the road out on the street three to four times a week <laughs> and, and yeah it's what it takes and he improved dramatically and in fact in the he was in the Olympics trials last summer mm-hmm. and was in, in great shape and just and somebody clipped his foot from the back and over a barrier and he hit a barrier and went down so I mean it, it, it's it was fun to see somebody say I'm gonna do this even though I've graduated from school I'm working full-time and I'm gonna do what it takes to be good and be successful that meant running in the dark, building his own hurdle. Yeah, you know, I I had only seen him twice a week, two to three times a week. The rest he was doing it on his own, and it, it it was fulfilling for me to see. Know what you know? Nobody else around here knew what he was doing, and or how hard he was working, and so he was doing it totally for himself, not for the for any other reason other than I want to I want to perfect this and get better at it. Totally self-motivated. And there's so many stories like that. I've had the chance to go with Paul and the team back to Louisville twice in the last five years Mm -hmm. um, to the NCAA championships and and meet people as they come up. There's there's kind of a cult hero following for Paul (laughs) with some people that they'll come up and they'd say, do you know who he is? Do you you know what he's done? And and in the running world, which, you know, may be foreign to many, you know, he's he's kind of got elite status. So that's been fun for me. And in the end, it's about it's about our kids. It's about our student-athletes and those experiences and watching them prepare and, and, and do the things that they do. That's, that's what motors the engine every day. Well, and the great thing, that same attitude is out there for our cross-country and track and field program. The, the, the rest of the nation... You know, we joke about the new marketing campaign they have right now about it's just Weaver because, you know, they show the geese walking across the road down here. And we're an open enrollment school, so anyone can come to Weaver. So the attitude is a little bit that, hey, anyone can get in. It must not be, you know, it's not it's not at, at a high level. Well, it truly is. We, we walk around any track, any cross-country meet in the nation, and they know who we are. And we have teams, big, powerful, I mean, the... The BCS football branded teams will turn and watch us come into a meet. I've had take pictures of our tent with our logo on it. Exactly, exactly. And and other, I've had fans and people come up and and asking for autographs from distance runners. And we're at University of Oregon, and somebody's yelling across, 
Hayward Field for Lindsey Anderson with a book, a book up, will you come sign this for me? You know, mm-hmm. so in Ogden, we're kind of like, yeah, it's we're Weber State <laughs> and everybody's used to it, but around the country, they know how to say our name, they, they know who we are, and they know the success that we've had over the years because of Chick Hislop and Jim Blaisdell. And well, yourself. And you too, absolutely. Well, it's been great to, to visit with you, Paul. Uh, how many miles do you run a day? Um, a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> you distance runners just can't stop, can you? You just keep running, don't you? Is there just something that is it, what is that? What is it? Is it because it's painful. Oh, it, it some days it is. You go out in the cold and the and oh, the hundred yeah. degree He's weather got and it's bubbles coming out. He comes running and I'm like, that looks so uncomfortable. But but what's a typical well, I, day? How much how much do you usually run? I'm doing ten to fifteen a day. Just depends. I did ten this morning. <laughs> okay, deal. Saw some yeah. mountain goats. We, I ran. I we came. Did. I came up as he was coming yeah. in. I was like, hey, I saw some mountain. You get to see a lot of things out there on the trail, don't you? We do. And Ogden is the best place to train that I've ever been because of this trail system. Yeah. And we really did see mountain goats this morning on the road. So. He'll go in the, in the, he's like the mailman. The cold, is, the, yeah. the, the hot, it doesn't matter. Oh, I've just seen run. it all in the snow. He will run. Yeah. And, and that's what they are. So, yeah. well, anyway, great. Uh, so much to, to visit with you, and congratulations on all the success. And I know it's it's just beginning, of course. There's a lot more to come. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Yeah. Great to have Paul Pilkington with us. He really has had tremendous success and, and helped put Weber State on the map, no question. Yeah, this is the this is what's fun about this podcast is is we get to just take a moment and kind of drill down on things that aren't in our normal business day, and we've got amazing stories to tell, and that's why we're going to keep doing this. We have heard about him. He's forever going to be known as the rabbit, right? But it, it yeah. paid off for him. The absolutely. rabbit that won. <laughs> the rabbit that won. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Weber State Athletics Podcast with Jerry Bovey. Be sure to follow us on WeberStateSports.com for all the latest on the Wildcats, and go Wildcats!